Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey folks, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar, and joining me today is Mr. Freight Alley himself, Craig Fuller. Welcome back. Hey Santosh, glad to be here. It's great to have you. And you know, the topic of this season, I, I think you're really well positioned to discuss here. It's all about revisiting the venture-backed brokerage and forwarding business model and just general market. And you've clearly had somewhat of a a front-row seat at Freight Waves as all of this has really unfolded over the course of this year. But before we go forward, I'd love just to give our audience uh, a primer. Let's level set the understanding of what you saw ultimately diagnosed as the reason behind the failure of Convoy back in October here? Yeah, so Convoy you know, was sort of the poster child of the very successful venture back company. And in fact, I mean, you could argue that there wasn't a better cap table across the entire venture freight ecosystem. I mean, you had, I mean, think about who was the investors. You had Reed Hoffman, you had Bill Gates, you had Bono was a part of the cap table. You had Jeff Bezos. I mean, it was like if you could create a fantasy league of like super investors for tech, Convoy's, their roster of investors was it. And I think what we learned is at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. And so for years, there was this big sort of conversation going on in the industry with incumbents saying it's unfair that Convoy gets valued this. And we have done this. We do the same things that Convoy does. They're not a disruptor. They're not an innovator. And yet investors continue to bid up the stock or continue to bid up the platform of the business and, and, and put a higher valuation to it. And one of the things I learned, and I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by some, some great investors. Chris Stallman from Fontenelles has always pointed out, and I know you know Chris, he was an early letter seed round. He's always pointed out throughout the years that one of the biggest challenges of bringing in brand name investors and raising at these really high valuations is if things go wrong and those investors give up on you, that no other investor wants to touch it. The Mm -hmm. the asset becomes toxic. In many ways, raising lots of capital like Convoy did is a great thing. And as founders, we want to raise at the highest valuation as much money as we can get our hands on. But what we don't understand often, especially first-time founders, don't understand is by doing so, we are pricing our business for absolute perfection. Yeah. In the event that things don't go the way that we think or hope or plan that they will, and we need capital, and those tier one investors are not there to give us capital, that can potentially put our business at risk. Mm. That is exactly what happened to Convoy. Is it was, you know, there were some internal issues that it had is, is that the freight market collapsed. We know that. It was its business model was tied to bookings, basically how much freight it was able to book and the rates associated with that. So it was dealing with 
one of the worst freight recessions in history, combined with a contraction in venture markets and in you know late stage growth that valued growth itself and convoy top line was was disintegrating at a time when venture investors and growth investors were also not interested in and putting business evaluations and speculative bets. And so it was faced with both those issues. And the problem was that Bank of America, who was the, I'm sorry, Goldman Sachs was the was the, the banker that went out to raise money, was telling management there was going to be no problem raising additional capital. So they didn't think that they had to aggressively cut cost in their business to sort of save the enterprise. In fact, Dan Lewis has said up until really the week of when it pulled the plug, he had thought they were going to find funding. And he had thought that there was a number of companies that were going to acquire the business or come in and invest in the business. And so he was also surprised by the outcome, much like the rest of us were. Mm. And so kind of stepping forward in this discussion around Convoy, John and myself have had this debate around were Convoy's margins truly 15% in the sense of as you kind of put on your financial analyst hat and go make the adjustments one needs to make, the thing that John was very fixated on is, yeah, Gap will have you kind of look at the assets that they had ultimately gotten into with their drop program, trailer drop program. That falls in OPEX. But ultimately, were they able to broker at 15% because they had capacity and they had these trailers that their shippers ultimately could fill with freight and then convoy serviced? Therefore, like one of the debates inside Dynamo is margins may not have been like single, mid single digits, but were they really 15% if you're adjusting for the cost of those trailers around the leases, maintenance, what have you? And I'd be curious your take and getting into a bit of that freight accounting. Yeah, so it's interesting, and having the benefit of having a lot of folks on the inside that were in the executive suite is, and really, if you think about the way that the market perceived Convoy, for years, myself included, believed that Convoy was buying market share. In the early phases, it was. It went out and basically was offering sub or you know inferior rates to competitors or sort of sub-market rates to attract volume, and it was a way that they essentially built the marketplace. It, it follows the Uber, and I don't mean Uber freight model, but the Uber model. Mm. They would go in a city, and they would flood it with capacity, and they would essentially buy market share to move people from taxis or personal transportation onto the Uber platform. And for years, this model worked. And that was how Convoy and Uber Freight and all these digital platforms would enter the market as they would go buy market share. And that worked for the first couple of years. But... What happened in the last two years is that Convoy realized that it had to be able to demonstrate to future investors that its margins were acceptable and were above the market. So they, and this is really what ultimately killed them, is they were doing $800 million in gross revenues. The freight recession hit. They then started to rationalize their margins to get actually into the 17 and 18% uh, range, not the 15% range that really significantly stunted their ability to maintain volumes and revenues because they optimized for margin. To your point, they also went out and added these trader pools that also drained 
the, the business, the capital of the business, and that also cost them. Now, at the end of the day, how much did that impact the P&L in terms of margins? I, I don't know. I think it was more of, a, of an issue around capital that equipment burnt. I mean, that's the reason everybody likes the asset light model or the, the non-asset model is that you don't have equipment tied up and capital tied up in equipment. And so there was some level, according to insiders, of as the market deteriorated, the equipment became available. Those trailers were still sitting on the op- OPEX of the business. It wasn't tied into the margins. But I don't think that really impacted the margin profile of the business as they were running freight. I think it was a separate line item inside the business. But I think ultimately what management would tell you, insiders like Dan and the founders would tell you is, and they would admit to this, and they certainly admitted it to me, is they were too slow to respond to the conditions of the market. A lot of companies that were not blessed with Convoy's balance sheet and investor base took far more aggressive action to cut. You know, our boards yeah. are, are screaming at us saying, hey, you got to cut burn. you got to be very disciplined. I'm sure, Santosh, you've had the conversations with some of your portfolio companies. And I, I've talked to my investors who said, like, there's a certain set of founders. Some of them were very proactive. We happen to be on the proactive side. You had some that were slow to respond, but eventually caught up. And you had others that were completely dismissive. I actually think what happened is the convoy blessed with all these riches was on the side of either things will correct and won't be so bad and we'll raise more money, or maybe even you could say a bit on the, hey, we will figure this out sort of things. And yeah. you can understand how they got there. I mean, look, it was like a dream team of investors and money. I mean, this business was valued at over $3 billion for a freight broker that never made a profit. I mean, it, it defied every bit of expectations that I'm sure... If you were Dan six months ago, you're looking at the data saying, I will figure this out. I always have. And I have these great investors around me that will help me figure it out. And they didn't. And you have to other, understand the thing. One of the advantages, Santosh, that you have, and there's a, there's a, a small group of investors that invest in supply chain technology. You, you certainly sort of the OG of, of freight tech investing and being one of the first pure play venture funds and still one of the only pure play venture funds in, in freight is that you understood the, the and, and, and clearly more, more people understand it now, but like you understood early on that freight brokerage is a brutal market and is a largely an uninvestable asset for venture capitalists because you're, you don't control the most important variable, which is the price of which you buy your capacity from. And yeah. because of that, a lot of those investors that were surrounded Convoy did not understand what they were invested in. Now, I'm going to use an analogy, and I, I don't want this to be taken out of context, but think about who invested in Theranos. They were investors that did not understand medical, the medical business and, and, and sort of what was going on. Certainly, Convoy is, was not a fraud, so I don't want to go, I don't want that to be taken out of context. That's not what I'm saying. But what really would have protected Convoy and probably kept it out of trouble in some ways had the investors around it had been far more in the business and understood the cycles better, I think it probably would have had a better chance. And, and look, we don't know what went on in those boardrooms. Right. We don't know how the board was directing management. I know I get direction from my board. Sometimes, you know, many times it's very helpful. There's been times it hasn't been. Yep. And there are decisions you make as a founder based on the inputs you get. And I am confident that his board 
was probably telling him to to do the things that they did. I think Dan is a, you know, Dan, I have an enormous amount of respect for Dan and the management team at Convoy. I, I don't believe that they were, that their board told them one thing and they did something completely different. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like on point for, for what I know of them. I just don't think the board understood that this cycle was yeah. as deep and as hard as it was. Yeah. So let me pull on that thread a little bit around kind of VC and, and this type of business model. Is it inherently that like VCs and brokerage and maybe even forwarding just bad fit? And they it's never because- should be in it. I mean, like I'm not a venture capitalist. So I don't, I don't think the way that you do and the way that other VCs do, but you guys are looking at a hundred X return type businesses. I mean, that's, that's what you underwrite every, not every check, but most checks are thinking, can this be a hundred X return? Can I, can this make my fund and then some? And the problem with freight brokerage is it doesn't work that way is that it is a business that is a fantastic lifestyle business. And look, you can build a, as, as you know, the founders of Dynamo know this, you can build a very successful lifestyle business and then some, and you can exit these things for a couple hundred million dollars, but to make it venture investable, it's a completely different thing. And then the reality is if, if you were starting a VC backed broker and you could take one check, a seed check and never raise again, then perhaps you could make the venture investor model work. Yeah. The problem is that these things consume a lot of cash along the way because you've got to build up market share. You've, you've got to build technology. You've got to put all of this investment in and it doesn't create the kind of venture returns. And the problem is, and this is what happened to Convoy, is the moment your company starts to stutter, the growth drops off and investors, future investors are no longer interested in investing. You're not getting a markup potential markup in your business, it's just not worth it. I mean, think about, so, you know, his Convoy's investors wrote off this investment, but looking at the cap table, there's very few people across the cap table with the exception of insiders and probably friends and family of, of, of the Convoy founders. There's very few of those investors that will miss the money they wrote off. And we're talking over a couple, you know, $900 million. Yep. But it's, it's, it's de minimis to T. Rowe Price. It's de minimis to Bill Gates. It doesn't mean anything. This is just another day. And I think the problem is you want to be, as a, as a founder, you want to be significant enough to your, your investors where they actually care about the outcome mm-hmm. of your business. And I think that's what didn't, Convoy didn't have was someone who cared about the outcome of the business. We know this. I mean, this, is not the, this will not be the only major freight tech failure. A lot of companies took money from places like SoftBank and Tiger that know nothing about logistics and have enough capital right now to still be in the game. But that music in terms of future investing has stopped and companies that raised at a 600 or 800 or 900 million valuation for Tiger, that may be the last check they ever receive because now they are uninvestable because Tiger has put this massive valuation on the company and the company's burned through all the cash. And as a future investor, I would say, Okay, you you raised a hundred million dollars and you didn't make the model work. Why do you think that my twenty million dollars at a hundred million dollar valuation is going to make a difference? And mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a difficult time for a lot of these founders. So, kind of jumping on on that SoftBank mention here, 
Let's shift to forwarding and, and flex sport. Flex sport, not in, in the category convoy is, uh, ironically ended up buying the convoy tech assets. But flex sport in its own right has had a turbulent year, right? Ended up going through kind of this botched management transition with the founder, CEO, and Ryan coming back. And I might find myself a bit more optimistic than most on Flexport's long-term prospects, but I'd be curious kind of where you're at, how you're thinking through Flexport. Like, I think Flexport is in a different market. Forwarding is very different than trucking. Trucking is a really a, think about execute a trucking broker transaction. Most cases, you have three parties. You have the intermediary, which would be convoy. You have the shipper and you have the carrier. Forwarding is a very different business where on a really clean transaction, you've got about nine parties involved in it. <laughs> you've got right. brokerage clearing, you've got DRE operations. It's a lot more coordination that technology can help fill. And I think it's a, a much more fragmented market for shippers. You have a lot of SMBs that sort of operate in that business. Trucking brokerage is quite different. It's just a, a more concentrated market in some ways. And so I think Flexport... And look, timing matters for a lot of these things. I mean, Flexport at the time when Ryan took back over the business had a billion dollars of cash left. I mean, it was able to raise a substantial amount of money during the up cycle. It hired you know, Dave Clark as CEO or co-CEO to be CEO, then fired CEO, um, enabled them to raise a lot of money. Just that, that, and they did it at a time when the market was at a real premium. They may never raise another round. I think it is quite possible that Flexport will never be able to raise another growth or venture round and still be a successful company. Mm. And I think Convoy, if you could, you know, reverse the clock and go back, say, a year ago, and they could see this play out with another company, may have also figured it out and survived it. I think Flexport, I think Ryan's got religion internally. I mean, to go in and basically fire 40% of the staff or something and turn it over in a very public way, yep. I think is a wartime CEO. And I, I think he has religion to save his company. And whether or not they will get there and they'll be the big disruptor and they'll be worth $8 billion, I don't know that. I don't think anyone can predict that. I do think it has a bit of, it has a, a, a real viable chance of surviving. And as I understand it, and Santosh, you may have better data than I do, is that there was a time when Flexport was profitable. I mean, certainly yep. it was an upcycle. They generated cash flow. To my knowledge, Convoy never achieved profitability. And because of that, I think you have a slightly different story that, that Ryan Peterson could tell versus what Dan could tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, a, I think, a really good and, and important distinction. That's right. My, my understanding is that during the kind of rip boom period in container forwarding Flexport was generating cash. And and that is equally something one could reference and say, we will get back to that and we will do certain things around top line and cost structure in order to will our way towards that once again. Yeah, um, I, look, it is true that brokers should not file bankruptcy. I've had a lot of people ask that know very little about freight that are like, how does a broker that know enough to be dangerous... How does a broker file bankruptcy? And then I've had a lot of people who are really knowledgeable also ask the same questions. Like, how does a freight broker file bankruptcy? Because ultimately, it's human capital. I mean, 
convoy did not have warehouses and they didn't have, they had these trailers that certainly drained the cash. The trailers probably were at most 20 to $30 million of, of cash burn a year. Yeah. We're not talking about the, it's an asset light model. And one of the great things about an asset light model is you can keep getting rid of your, your teams. But I think what happened is one of the things that's important to know about freight brokers, and this is why we've seen freight brokers file bankruptcy, where you know we've been covering the market since 2016. I've been in the freight market, around the freight market for, for my whole life. I can't remember when freight brokers filed bankruptcy. I just don't remember that ever happening. I'm sure if I went back in the history, you'd find it. With the exception of fraud uh, and securities issues, there's really no reason for a freight broker to suddenly shut the doors or file bankruptcy. It is unusual because a lot of the freight brokers finance their business through some type of asset-based line of credit. Yep. And they had covenants involved in these lines that they had to maintain margin thresholds and they were in violation of them. And if they didn't save their earnings, if they'd made money during the upcycle and they didn't retain those earnings, then what ends up happening is when those notes get called in, and this is effectively what happened to Kill Convoy is, the lender called the note yep. and the value of the business was less than what the note was worth that effectively there was no way to fund it. And so this is going to take out a couple of, there'll be other freight brokers that will fail for very similar reasons. And, and it's something to watch. I don't, again, talking about the Flexport Convoy, I think we have two different stories, two different types of businesses, even though they're doing the, effectively in the same market, what they do is functionally different and how they operate is functionally different. I do think that Flexport has a really nice shot. At taking. One thing that you will find talking to practically everybody who has a sort of fair opinion of Convoy is almost everyone would say, hey, it never was worth that. Their business model was broken, but their technology was good. It was really, really reputable and solid. Flexport has picked up a great platform. I think they can execute something with it and perhaps be a winner in that Convoy story. So, you know, you you understand public investor perspectives as well as founder. You make uh, venture investments yourself. I'm curious, like, what do you think of the Flexport strategy, right? Like, they've started in container forwarding. They've gone into warehousing. They bought Deliver. There are a lot of opinions on Deliver as a business standalone, equally. Then they've picked up the convoy assets a couple months after Bill joined in order to build out kind of a, a brokerage vision that was inside the business. So they've kind of gone end to end. And I'd be like, what do you think ultimately this gets parsed through as? Because is it kind of too complex or is that the complexity that's required to live up to the $8 billion price tag placed on it during its last round? Well, I think it's the latter. And I, and I think one of the advantages that Ryan Peterson has is he's hired Bill Dreiger, which effectively built Uber Freight. Was a mm -hmm. it's what Coyote, at least in the latter years of Coyote, he, Bill knows the playbook on how to build a freight broker. Like he did it at Uber Freight, and I think now he has the advantage of a robust technology platform mm -hmm. and convoy. And so, in many ways, this formula I think could be super successful. And I think Ryan's management style is a bit hands-off where, you know, he's, he's got a strong personality, but he still, as I understand it, has delegates a lot of responsibility and the details to management teams. I think that enables Bill to thrive in that environment. And 
look, they're going to benefit. There were shippers love convoy. The other thing about that I've heard about convoy is that shippers really love convoy. Drivers, some of the small independent owner operators hated convoy. Truck drivers hated them. Competitors hated convoy. But generally, the folks that matter, the folks riding the freight, you know, the shippers, the ones that are routing the freight and buying the services, largely had an enormous amount of respect for convoy, and they had high quality customers. They potentially could pick up a lot of those. My understanding is that Dan Lewis is going to go to Con to, to Flexport at least for a period of time. And he will be able to, I think, bring some of those customers on board. And they don't have all of the baggage that Convoy brought along with it, all the people. And mm-hmm. and so I actually am quite bullish on the, the Flexport Convoy combination. You almost it's regretful that that didn't happen months ago before Convoy yeah. Thunder. I mean, I actually called my one of my first calls. I was sitting over the courthouse in Chattanooga. I actually had a Convoy jacket on that it was given to me as a gift at, at one of their user conferences last year. I was sitting in the courtroom. My phone starts blowing up about the the rumor of Convoy shutting down. And I couldn't get a hold of Dan and Brooks, who are the folks that are my primary contacts at Convoy. They wouldn't respond to me. And that was unusual because usually if it's a story, they would respond, good or bad, they would let me know. And I was like, okay, this has gotten a little bit of smoke in my mind. So the next thing I did was I called, I was like, who would know? Bill Drygart would, would know and Ryan Peterson would know. So I called Ryan picks up and he's like, I know nothing about it. And he has this like, they should have called me kind of response. Like yeah. if it's shutting down, it should call me. And then Bill calls me back and he's like, I'll call you back in five minutes. And so he calls me back and he's like, it's true. So Bill confirms that, hey, this thing is actually going down. But it was interesting because when I talked to Ryan about it, he knew nothing about Convoy's implosion. So like, this is not a deal. I don't think Flexport was thinking about this months before they acquired it. Right. I think this became opportunistic. And they offered a lifeline for some of those early, you know, some of those convoy engineers and the tech and the customers. And so I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Mm. So I'm going to step forward here. And, you know, we've we've voiced over this as to investors, I think, are a bit ho-hum now on this category. I think they realized how little they knew. I think a lot of them are also questioning is this a fit? Like, is our asset class actually going to generate that 100x in something that is way more capital consumptive than I had originally realized as an investor? But I'm of the opinion that we have entered an interesting point with the introduction of transformers and LLMs that are able to automate workflow that require context and understanding. And that is something that a broker has, right? Like, the, the shipper who's called in, where do they sit? How much freight do we broker for them? How do we treat them as a result of that? And I think that there's an opportunity ultimately to automate in a freight brokerage context, but equally a forwarding context as well. And you noted they're very different. Forwarding is much more complex. But I do think that ironically, maybe now is the time that there are interesting opportunities given this new wave of technology to have a bet in whether it's a direct SaaS play, whether it is a full stack broker play because of this enablement. And I guess part of what I would love to hear from you is like, what's, what's been your thoughts around it? Because you're clearly playing with Transformers, LLMs, Dolly, the, the whole like. We can see that on your social media. So how do you think about this applied to this context? Well, I think the tourists are gone. I mean, there's one thing that, that is probably really, like for you as an investor, 
the people that are investing want to be investors. And there's like, there's some great ones. I mean, you guys have built a fantastic brand of Dynamo. There's a, you know, a couple of others. And what's really interesting about this that I have found, if you go look at the, at the digital sort of brokers, a lot of the pure play investors, the ones that are highly knowledgeable and highly connected to the industry, did not actually make those investments. These were made outside of our typical. Like, look at what, I mean, Dynamo, you guys made what? One digital broker investment in Europe. You also yep. invest in Stored, which became sort of a, as an add-on service in that. But really, in terms of investments in the space, you never touched that category. AVC, one of the most, more, you know, most prolific both early and, and sort of mid-stage funds that's very active also did not make a lot of investments. And I think you can go through the list of every active investor in this space. They're not, they may have invested in Flexport very early on because a lot of these guys did. <laughs> so the first, first taste in the business, if you go look at anybody that was active from say 2017 on, they were not investing in digital platforms or digital matching services. And so I think the tourists are gone I remember, and I've invested in stuff that I remember looking at being like, there is no way this business is worth as much as it is. And being shocked by how much money that an investor had attuned to it. And I wrote a check because I liked the founder and wanted to support them, even though I felt like almost it was a donation to sort of pay it forward, that it was a legitimate investment. I was like, this is going to zero. I can't believe I'm writing this check, but I feel <laughs> some level of obligation to support for-profit philanthropy. Something like that, even though I knew at the time that it was like that the, the math just didn't make sense. And so a lot of those investors are on their way out or have, have exited the space or not doing future investments. And I think that's positive. And look, this is not an unusual thing in venture markets. There's a, and you've talked about this before on your podcast, is that you always have these bubbles where uh, people way over... It's the Gartner hype cycle. Investors yep. get super geared up. They put a lot of money in place. There's a lot of FOMO. You have the tourists that join the market and really prop up the market. And then all of a sudden, the, something happens and there's a correction. And it's a pretty severe correction. The tourists go away. The, the assets become uninvestable for the tourists. But the real pure play investors that, that understand why how we got here and why this wasn't investable, that their thesis still holds, are still very active looking at high quality investments. I mean, you didn't invest in, you know, digital brokerage was not a thesis you guys got behind. Mm -mm. So you didn't get burned there and you understood the whole time that these guys were going to get burned. You've made investments that will sustain, whether it's robotic automation or SaaS businesses or whatever. You guys- Durability. What's that? We, we always think about durability and- kind of durability hits our, our world a bit differently because we get macro, but we also get freight as well. And one needs to have a business that can endure the whipsaw of both of those. And, and there's one other thing that I think is interesting. And I think this is the reason Dynamo has been successful. And it's the reason that other investors that, that, have, that are not tourists but are actually have a thesis that will have very successful outcomes. I think that defines them is you guys have surrounded yourselves, whether through advisors or actually your founders, even uniquely so, that have actually been in this business. And so the yep. cycle itself, the pain of building the business is not unusual to you. It's not, it's not something that you don't understand and that you don't have the stomach for. And one of the things that I have observed over the last decade is 
the most successful founders in this space either came from the industry or have partnered one of their co-founders was from the industry. So yep. if you look at it, and it was funny because I actually made this, I had this conversation on stage six months ago, and I was said the only one I could think of that didn't have domain expertise was Convoy. And it's funny now that that's played out, is it's true if you go look at Jet McCandless, Andrew Leto, these are founders that actually were from this industry. And I think if you go and look at the list of them, that's predominantly what you see. There are a couple of sort of outside exceptions to that. But when we're talking about successful freight tech founders, for the most part, they have true industry uh, domain expertise. And when we look at you as an investor at Dynamo, you are not only surrounded by folks that did it, but you're the founding partners of your fund actually successfully sold a, yep. a freight, freight brokerage. And so I think that that enables you, one, to have the grit to understand it, B, to recognize the patterns of success here, and C, to understand why some of these businesses will succeed and why some of them won't. Yeah, no, and I, I think it's a, it's a strong point, which has also led us to kind of, you mentioned our investor or investment in Sender, We've done another one in Africa, in East Africa, in freight brokerage. And in, in all those situations, right? Like John and I can pass judgment. We've been around this stuff long enough. But ultimately, we say, Ted Barry, like this is, if there's anything in the scope of supply chain that is yours, it is this brokerage, aspects related to servicing carriers, uh, so carrier side SaaS. You know, you need to be willing to kind of go on the journey and provide that that mentorship. And a lot of that mentorship is actually around operational expertise. It's not it's not about technology. Like John and I might come over the top and say, hey, like it's worth looking at these processes with this lens, because you might be able to squeeze a couple points here and there. But that's really like only been able to truly get delivered in the last year or so as we see people doing interesting things with some of the more modern tooling that's coming up, it's not really like, hey, like let's build a new TMS. Like I saw a, a thread going on Twitter last night, or X rather, around like people making fun of McLeod. Well, McLeod's a super robust, time-tested platform. I saw the same thread. It was interesting <laughs> because McLeod arguably looks like it was built in the 1990s. Yeah. Like, you look at the screens, it's old, it's dated. But one of the points that somebody made on X was that Yes, but it understands the how to move freight and what like I think the example was like delivery windows or something like transit times. You, you, you can basically like deliver a load in like backwards in, reverse, in time. Right? Like, like, um, yeah, it was like the delivery date was before the pickup date or something. Yeah, like a lot of this stuff, like McLeod and Tremble, we can give it a hard time as well. And you know, you everyone loves to hate the TMSs, like. It's the same thing that I found in, I was in fintech nine years in payments and everyone lo loved to hate the cores like FIS and uh, Fiserv and all this and Jack Henry. And what I find is when, when you have core infrastructure technology like a TMS, everyone is frustrated with some functionality that it, that it has. But what, what these older systems have is they are time-tested mission-critical software where the code is built to withstand all of the cycles and requests. And, and it's a very different sort of set of logic than building something from scratch. And I mm -hmm. think when you're building a multi-tenant 
platform, it's very different than when you're building a SaaS platform for e-commerce or for, because you can make changes on the fly really quickly. But when you have multiple customers that are dependent upon that software and its core infrastructure, actually the incumbents end up winning those games. The other thing that people often forget or underestimate is one of the things about a TMS, and this is true in core banking software that I learned watching core banking systems, is that because it's mission critical, no matter how much somebody loves to hate that software, they're it's not, not going, going anywhere. To replace it. ERP is another, like Oracle's mm -hmm. ERP system is amazingly robust and people love to hate it. SAP, you can put in that category. You can put in Salesforce in that category. Yep. These are, these, are, these are software platforms that everyone loves to hate, but these businesses continue to grow because it is not worth the disruption to your business to change them. Yep. Because yep. they're so core to the success of that business. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, we, we, we have a statement where we look at the three pillars of supply chain across ERP, your WMS, and your TMS. And from time to time, we'll kind of flirt with the idea of like, what if we seed like the next ERP? And you, know, you, you try to build a, a thesis around size of company or, or vertical application, but it always comes back to like, how do you make something 10x better? Because like yeah. that is kind of the quintessential, how do you force buying behavior to change? You have to be better and cheaper in the mm -hmm. age of SaaS. And it's really hard. Like I've asked some of the smartest people, I'm like, how do you make a TMS 10X better? It's like, it just needs to be robust. It, it, like it's very hard to compete against the in, incumbents who have really fleshed out the product quite well. And UI UX doesn't matter. This is the often thing that I, 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 I observe and have found people who know nothing about selling enterprise software into supply chain often learn after a couple of years of doing it is that Supply chain organizations and divisions of companies, particularly on the shipper side, is largely an ignored area for a CapEx. And it only gets attention when things are sort of melting down, where it's, it's starting to cause significant disruptions to its business. As all of a sudden, the CFO starts paying attention, the CEO starts paying attention. And the problem is, because of that, it's hard to convince someone to make big change inside their organizations with a big cost and big risk. And so as an early stage company, as a founder, if, I'm, if I was creating a TMS, what I would have to do is go after a lot of really small, either really SMB businesses, because I would want the owner of the company who is a single decision maker and an operator to be involved in the decision. The problem is it's incredibly expensive and hard to scale. And the problems are in the upper side of the market. Mm -hmm. Founders know where the issues live in the upper side. In the lower end of it, they just need something that basically does the very basics of it. And so we deal with two different types of problems. But one thing I observed in banking, Santosh, that I think is very true, and I pull a lot of my sort of observations and anecdotes from payments into supply chain, is that this, there was a, an enormous amount of successful middleware businesses. So the core banking yep. software suck. Like, you can name any of them and they're all acquired and, but you know, there's been this big consolidation. But what would happen is companies would end up creating middleware that would talk to the core system to solve point issues and issues in certain types of segments. And that was a very vibrant business model because they didn't have to overhaul the core. The core basically became a core processing or core database system 
but they could solve some of the other layers of problems around that a middleware was uniquely positioned yep. to do. And I saw that actually become quite successful. And I think yeah, we, we do have some of that technology there, but we're still in the infinite stage of like, we're, we're a really young industry in terms of innovation. So I think that's where we'll see the next decade. We'll start to see a lot of those middleware applications. And you can argue visibility is probably the most successful type of middleware, middleware. that we have. But that's, that story is still young in itself. No, I, I think it's well said. And, and I think you, you basically encapsulated our thesis and, and why we have a, a middleware approach to kind of managing these three core systems that we deal with day in and day out in our industry. But with that, I have a, I have a couple questions here as we wrap up. I guess first is like all said thus far in our conversation, if you had to go start a technology-driven freight brokerage today, what would be kind of your first initial steps as you establish that infant business? So I would buy everything off the shelf. I mean, the, okay. the whole thing is like, if you look at the technology play layers that are in this space, and this is different than what sort of Convoy's thesis and even Uber Freight's thesis early on, is that they were going to build everything in-house and sort of own their own tech stack. The reality is a lot of the technology that you can buy off the shelf from these startups, whether you know, they're funded by Dynamo or, or funded by other sources or just bootstrapped, they serve a lot of the problems in this industry. And, and look, you have to realize if you're going to be a broker, the chances of you getting massive market share is, is pretty low. And so Sage Robinson is a 15% market share Let's say TQL is 5 to 6% market share. It's a very long tail beyond that. Yep. And so because of that, you want to benefit from the economies of scale across the industry where CapEx is going across a lot of different players and being monetized. So that's what I would do is buy off-the-shelf technology. And then what I would focus on is using data and information and customer acquisition to gain an edge. I would actually spend my tech stack in my customer acquisition and my customer success and operations side of my business and, and actually take services and technologies that are not from this industry, but are actually come from sort of consumer tech. I would do that. And that's where my investments would be if I were to start a freight broker, but I'm not I love that. Pain. I don't, I would not do a freight broker, but look, it's a great <laughs> lifestyle, but I, I don't know that I'm going to go do that. So, so I guess, my, my final question is, like, it's obviously been, and in, in, in our pre-call chat here, we acknowledge like, it's been an active year in supply chain, but for different reasons than what COVID brought us. And I'd be curious, as we conclude this year, enter 24, like, what are the implications of this? What should we expect? Any hot takes? Anything yeah, look, I, that you're hypothesizing? So, Santos, it's interesting, because I... I run a venture-backed data company that has a large, we're largely known for media, even though that's now a smaller piece of our business. As a venture-backed company, we see both sides of it. I see the, the software side of it, and I see the media side of it. Our media business is off 40%. Think about advertising dollars as the first thing to go. But there's this weird dichotomy because of the traffic and engagement on the site is way up. I mean, it's exponentially larger because... We have a saying, if it bleeds, it leads. So, you know, the convoy story, the yellow story, the labor strike, the UPS strike, a potential strike. Like we have had just an array of stories that just keep coming 
at it. So it's a really interesting time to cover the market because I don't think there's been, there's never been a time when freight's been, supply chain's been boring, but I don't think there's been a, a more pivotal moment in our industry. And it feels like we're, we've gone past the COVID cycle. We're past the sort of early stages of freight tech investing. We're going to see more companies fail, more bankruptcies, even some big freight tech back companies are going to go under. And those stories will continue to live on. And I think this is just sort of an opportunity to have a rebirth. And look, there, if you go through the history of venture capital, I know you're a student of it as well, is these things happen. I mean, you had, you had the 90s that sort of brought the first people got on the internet, then the dot-com uh, bubble burst. Then we had sort of social media came up to sort of, sort of Gen 2. I was in payments. You know, everybody was sort of chasing mobile payments and sort of mm -hmm. tried the great financial crisis. FinTech was the greatest theoretical case for investing venture sort of uh, focus subject of the 2010 to 2020s, like yep. FinTech was the right stage. That all started, really took off during the great financial crisis. We will see supply chain will win out of the next decade. This will be a very robust investment class. The tourists will be gone for at least a couple of years. But I think <laughs> there's an awesome opportunity as a founder to start a business that has sustainable unit economics and has a chance to really solve some of these problems. And you benefit from a lot of the errors and failures of companies in the past. You don't get caught. One of the biggest pressures as a founder, and I'm sure founders that you work with say this, is like you see all these companies raising at these ridiculously high valuations. And there is a competitive part of you as a founder that's like, man, why am I not getting yep. these super high billion dollar valuations and the $300 million checks on my million dollar AR business? Like that was never offered to me. Why am I not getting that opportunity? And I think that's a distraction at the end of the day. And we were fortunate that we run a business that is well capitalized. We have great investors, but we never were viewed as a $10 billion unicorn. Like we have a very healthy business and our investors will do very well, but this is not going to be a $10 billion exit in the next five years. Right. No one ever got sort of believed that was the case. And I never believed that was the case because investors would constantly tell me that was the case. And so because of that, I also didn't believe I could run my business with unlimited amounts of cash and resources. And I didn't have the distractions of actually trying to chase the big round. And I think that's much healthier. Freightways will have a great exit at some point in time. And it will be a very healthy exit because we have not raised a ton of money. We've raised yep. $60 million in venture capital. We've raised a little bit more in, in some debt and some warrants. But at the end of the day, our whole business model will probably, at the end of the day, raise a total of $70 million before our investors get an exit. And you're talking, you know, a couple hundred million dollar exit is a really good outcome for the yeah. founder, me really good outcome for the employees and really good uh, outcome for the early investors. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. I think it's well said. Um, certainly, I think this year has taught a lot of founders who got used to the fast and loose ways of VCs. And equally, as a VC, I'll say, you know, I have peers who equally kind of indulged in some of these practices. And, and it's what it is. A lot of them now are, have kind of spent the year reevaluating their portfolio, trying to get things in, in, in a good position. But we are seeing equally, like as I think about our, our more recent investments and what is sitting in our investment pipeline, like you're seeing like the real 
like just salt of the earth founder come back who they don't give a damn whether they're going to get a particular round done at a valuation because they'll find a way to solve the problem that they've shown up to our doorstep obsessing about. So, so sometimes one of the, one of the things that I think from you, so you're to early, earlier stage, like you yeah. guys are pre-seed seed. Yeah. So you're, 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 you're seed in what? You're, you do a pre-seed seed. No. Uh, seed. Yeah. So you, one of the, the issues for a risk for you guys is when these companies were getting bid up so highly that pref stack is you're lower on the pref stack and it actually creates a perverse issue because you love the fact that investors are excited about the case, the space, because that, that creates a whole ecosystem and a lot of activity, but you hate the fact that some of these companies, these breakout companies got valued so highly. And now what we're seeing is valuations are getting crushed. And like, there are some really big names in this space that I know that some of their investors are writing down two thirds, like mm -hmm. they're wiping out two thirds of the valuation and actually right, putting the current valuation below the amount of money they've raised. And these are really successful enterprise SaaS companies that, that by every measure have been super successful and among the more successful enterprises in our space, but they got valued so richly that the reality doesn't not, not does not match up the opportunity. And I think that's going to be something interesting to watch over the next couple of years. The good news, like I said, the tourists are out of it. We have some breathing room as, as an investor. It's, I think it's a, it's a great outcome for, for everybody in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, well said. Well, that Craig, I much appreciate you joining us here, sharing your wisdom on the subject. And I, I want to point out one thing for folks that know you did call the inventory recession, the supply chain recession. You were the um, first person on Twitter. I appreciate that. That actually said it, I think in January of 2020, uh, 22, you had predicted a bull whip and you were the first person on Twitter to say that this could become the very first supply chain driven recession. And I think you deserve credit for that. I appreciate that. I'm still monitoring uh, a lot of those shots. And, and, and some of them I, I get credit for, uh, such as this one. I appreciate that. Um, I have one LP call me a month ago saying I might be getting a, a bit too pessimistic. <laughs> but then they basically read me back our most recent LP letter that you probably got about a month ago. And they then continue to layer on as to how bank lending is starting to tighten up because of pending regulation. And they're kind of talking themselves into being a, a bit more, I guess, sober about mm -hmm. 24. So we'll see. Nice we'll see. Lot. We'll see. Thanks a bunch, Craig. Appreciate it, Josh. Take yeah. care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.